Thank you for tuning in to the Creative Strings Podcast. This is episode 29 with Janet Orenstein. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. My guest today, Janet Orenstein, shares a really fascinating and personal story regarding how she incurred a debilitating injury, how that affected her, and a lot of the surprising discoveries that she made. I met her in Winston-Salem when I was down at University of North Carolina School of the Arts to do some workshops, and I'll be returning there this summer. And uh, you should definitely consider the Summer Strings program, and that's at UNC sa.edu. Um, it's going to be the third week of July, and that's following on the heels of two other summer camps. Uh, the first week, of course, the Creative Strings Workshop in Columbus, Ohio, and the second week, which will be the Asheville Creative Strings Extension. Fun fact, um, Winston-Salem, North Carolina is not that far from Durham, North Carolina, and Durham is where the Electric Violin Shop is based. Electric Violin Shop is a sponsor of this podcast, and the reason that I recommend them to everybody, any kind of string players, the biggest reason is because of their phone support. I get questions from violinists and string players about gear, going electric, pickups, amps, all the time, like two or three times a week. And I always just tell them, go to electricviolinshop.com and look for their phone number and give them a call because they'll sit there on the phone with you and they'll answer all of your questions. They're awesome. Make sure when you do speak with them to ask them about the line of Yamaha electric strings. Because if you know anything about me, <laughs> you know that I use Yamaha. I depend on Yamaha. Creative string players depend on Yamaha. I want to thank Yamaha and Electric Violin Shop for sponsoring the Creative Strings Podcast. I really hope you enjoy today's episode with Janet Orenstein. Janet Orenstein, thank you so much for joining me um, and sharing with us at the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm really happy to see you again. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> so I really am fascinated by the story um, that I heard from you the other day when we were at lunch, when I was visiting um, University of North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston-Salem. got to work with your wonderful students, a wonderful program, looking forward to coming back next summer and working with them. Uh, I think it's the third week of July, and people can certainly check that out. Um, but I would love for you to share your story because it was really inspiring on many levels to me. I think it's a unique story that we can get a lot from. So I wonder if you'd be willing to start with the same place that you started when you shared the story with me, which was during or beginning or right as you were getting ready to start your tour in Africa. Was this, what, 15, 20 years ago? Oh, well, it was in 1996. It was in April and May of 1996. So you can do the math. It was more than 20 years ago. And what and, happened? Um, well, I was on a lot of um, recommended vaccinations and uh, and also an anti-malarial medication called mefloquine, which, as it turns out, is um, a pretty serious drug that has some major side effects and 
you probably shouldn't be on it for more than a couple of weeks. And my pianist and I were on it for about nine or 10 weeks. And we had all sorts of symptoms together. We would laugh about it. We'd get a migraine headache every time we took it. We would have horrible death dreams and, you know, wouldn't be able to sleep. We'd sleep maybe an hour a night. Um, she ended up having panic attacks. And I ended up having a sort of weird, aside from just incredible fatigue and insomnia, a weird thing happened to my left hand where it just started to feel a little sluggish. And when I would play the fast passages, I felt slightly less coordinated, but I could still pull off everything. And I guess being young and whatever, I kind of ignored it. Um, when I got back from Africa, I had a fairly relaxing summer. We ended up moving to Charlottesville that summer. And I went back to New York to give him final doctoral recital. And I was playing a fast movement of solo Bach and felt the same kind of, um, I don't know, a, a sort of malaise almost in trying to coordinate my left hand. And so I decided to take a lesson with my, my old teacher and, and said, would you please watch me play this and what's going on? And she said, you know, that's not your hand. You really better get to a doctor. She said, I've never seen you look like that. And it started to feel like I couldn't lift my third finger and it just wasn't, it wasn't flowing. It just wasn't coordinated. So I got through the recital, I got my degree and I went on tour and played a ton of concerts that fall, uh, did maybe five or six premieres with my piano trio. Every time I played, it was getting a little bit worse, but I didn't really have time to deal with it. I did go to a, a hand, um, a, a hand surgeon who sent me to neurologists and I think that fall I got checked out to make sure I didn't have MS or something really horrible and everything seemed to be fine. All my nerves were working properly. So nobody really had any advice except to try to get some rest. And then that December I got pregnant. And when I was on tour in my first couple months of pregnancy, my hand completely fell apart. And I, at the, for the last concert on the tour, I, I took my two colleagues aside and said, I can't play. I don't know if I can even get through this concert. And they said, really, is it that bad? And I said, really, it is, just watch. And there was dead silence in the room after I attempted to play something. And I'll never forget my pianist just said, okay, just play repeated notes, you know, the same note on repeated bows. Don't, you know, don't play any of the passage work in the Mozart. And we won't, we'll take out all repeats. Let's just get through this concert you know, just get through the concert. And I did that basically and spent the rest of the pregnancy really, really worried and deteriorating. Um, the internet was just, you know, sort of a, a beginning thing at that point. And I, I did a little research or whatever research I could and diagnosed myself with focal dystonia, but I was already at that point about eight or nine months pregnant. And so I had the baby beautiful child, beautiful first child, my son. And then I went up to NIH and attempted to play the violin for a team of neurologists who were doing a study on focal dystonia and they confirmed my diagnosis and they wanted me in their study. Um, and I, I said no, because it, it involved Botox and I, I really, really, really wanted them to help me, but I didn't want to put Botox in my body if I was nursing a newborn child. So um, 
I declined that offer, but it was really the beginning of a kind of nightmare period of my life because I basically woke up and had lost all my skill on the violin altogether. I really couldn't coordinate even two notes. And in the beginning, um, after that tour, my left hand would, I'd wake up with it in a fist like this, and I'd have to use my other hand just to open it because I, I couldn't even find the muscles. Like I couldn't find the muscles with my brain to release my hand. Um, it really did feel like somebody else's hand was on the end of my arm. Like I had a stroke or something weird like that. Um, I continued to see doctors and I went to every kind of alternative, uh, you know, practitioner that you could name. Um, I probably threw about $10,000 at it in the first eight or nine months, you know, after my son was born. Um, and really just had to cancel concerts and and withdraw from from my musical life uh my manager at the time said don't tell anybody um because nobody likes you know people like to talk about musicians with hand problems and you'll never get another concert um which was ironic since i couldn't actually play another concert <laughs> so um but so i was kind of lonely too i i withdrew and and followed her advice, but was just really kind of devastated. Um, you know, so I didn't really know what to do. Uh, what I, what I ended up doing was over time with a lot of, you know, through a lot of tears and a lot of, you know, painful practice sessions, I allowed myself to move however I possibly could on the violin, which for about six years meant using only two fingers because I couldn't actually move my third and fourth fingers. So they would curl beneath the fingerboard and I would actually get around pretty remarkably well with a lot of practice with my only two fingers. Um, and I just, my technique of course changed dramatically. I mean, there wasn't a violin lesson I had in my life that would have prepared me for the fingerings I was using. And my, my, my music looked kind of like computer code, you know, it was like a lot of O's and ones and ones and twos. Um, but, uh, you know, I did that for about six years. Um, and after my second child was born, I miraculously, the other two fingers started to float up a little bit and uh, I was able to use them up sparingly. You know, if I, if I used my third finger, I had to like give it a long time to recover before I could use it again. So, yeah, it just took my brain a long time to be able to lift the finger up after it was down. So it was really, yeah, it was really crazy. And, uh, you know, performing was really, you know, naturally changed my, my mindset tremendously. Um, I would go out on stage with like four sets of fingerings over various passages because I never knew what my hand was going to want to do that day. Sometimes I would come up with a great fingering and then the next day I couldn't do it. So, you know, it was, it was definitely, it was definitely painstaking work. Um, when I moved to Greensboro at six, when my second child was six weeks old, um, I was asked to play the Greensboro symphony and, um, I said, no, I just was just too afraid actually to, to, uh, to do it. I didn't think I would, could really pull it off. And finally, after a lot of nagging the, the, uh, personnel director convinced me that I should do it. And I said, please put me in the very back of the second violin section. And 
I just memorized my part. I basically just, I didn't dare write any of my fingerings in the music because I thought my stand partner would have a heart attack if, if he saw them. So, um, you know, I, I just basically would memorize my music. And I did that for years, actually, in the Greensboro Symphony. Uh, they, they did put me in the first violin section, and it, which did make me very nervous, but I just practiced for hours on probably on stuff that I would have been able to sight read quite easily before. So it was a real lesson for me. I've always been a kind of multi allegro person. I mean, it gets me into trouble driving. I've had to really learn to use cruise control. Um, and yeah, I, that's kind of my inner tempo. And I've always been really quick at, <laughs> at learning things. Um, so I was, I was sort of facile in a way and almost maybe glibly so, you know. So this was a total change for me. I had to spend hours and hours doing figuring out fingerings for maybe, you know, five or six notes sometimes. So um, it was, it was very humbling. And it was, it really just, it changed my personality completely, I would have to say. How did it change um, your personality? Well, it, it made me immediately more compassionate, a person um, for anybody who struggled in any way with anything, and especially for old people for people who lose movement. At the time, I guess I was in my 30s. I was, when my first child was born, I had just turned 33. So this was happening all through my 30s and 40s. And um, I, had some, I had some dear friends who were elderly at the time, um, former students of mine, amateur students, and, and other people in my life, my grandmother. And I think, I think when you're young, sometimes you just try not to notice that it's hard to be old. You, you know, the old people you know, you just, um, you know, you just, you just don't relate to them in in a certain way and what they're what they're going through. And I I suddenly really felt what they were going through, if they couldn't move so easily or or just any kind of loss of movement. Um, you know, it it really did it really did sort of slow me down tremendously in my own work. It made it so that with my teaching, I could just pick up the violin and demonstrate. I used to do that probably way too much um, as a teacher. I, I had to learn how not to do that and how to, to explain and demonstrate only very sparingly so that I could actually uh, help my students. Why know, do you not think distract that, them. Why do you think you used to do it too much d d demonstrating? How did it change? Because I love to because I love to play and it was fun. And so I think sometimes it's it's easier to say no just do it like this, you know, or and and that's not always so bad by the way. It's it's very helpful for students to hear how something you know should go. So I'm not suggesting that people that that teachers should not demonstrate. I think it's very important. Uh, it's a very important part of teaching and it was hard for me to not have that at my fingertips. But I do think that you can sometimes do it too much and not spend enough time analyzing exactly what the student is struggling with. Okay. Um, yeah. So it, it, it did change me as a teacher in that way. So did that make you a better teacher? Because you were, you were demonstrating as a result of not knowing how to teach in other ways. So then you had to learn how to teach better or another way. 
Yeah, that's what I would say. I would say it, it definitely made me have to analyze things and explain things and use, you know, use verbal explanations. Um, it made me more, more curious about what the student was feeling and what they were experiencing. Um, so it just changed my entire approach to movement in general. It, the other thing that changed, of course, a big thing in my life that changed was um, I, I was attempting to do a sort of OT that was based on a, a study across the country in San Francisco. This, this, this researcher named Nancy Beale was doing research on dystonia, uh, taking a really different approach from the people at NIH. Her approach was this is a this is a train wreck in the brain and it's probably a distorted sensory feedback loop that makes your whole the whole mapping of your hand kind of crazy and your body is operating your brain is operating with a faulty map from a faulty map of your hand so you can if you got into this mess you could get out of this mess you know you could uh the plasticity of the brain would enable it to rewire itself yet again and and heal itself and i i just say intuitively that felt like that could happen for me i felt like how did this happen i'm completely fine my nerves work completely well there's something weird i need a reboot of some kind so that i can train my hand again um you know people would say to me just practice just retrain your hand but it it doesn't it didn't work that way because unfortunately it was all happening like at the brainstem level. So before I could actually control a movement, the whole hand would go into a spaz and fingers would pop up, others would curl. There was no actual way in to control the movement. It was so it your was brain, your essentially you had some form of brain damage. Is, would that be correct? I would say it was a re yeah, there it was. A, I think it does make sense that there was a sensory feedback loop distortion so that somehow the the mapping that you that you work from i mean you're really creating your body all the time it, it happens if you if you were living on a boat you would learn how to balance on that boat and then when you get back on land you have sea legs i mean your body is always changing itself it's all if you turn yourself upside down eventually you're going to see right side up um you know this is this you know there's a lot of interpretation that happens and there's a lot of feedback that we get from the world that helps us to understand our own bodies, our own physical manifestation. Um, I think that is accurate. Okay. Yes. Okay. Because I, I feel that I, even though I can play probably at 80 to 90%, my hand really functions amazingly well right now. I, I'm always amazed every time I pick up a violin. Um, I still feel like I can activate the dystonia, that it's still there, that there is still sometimes this confusion at certain tempos. Um, so I think you're, I think that's correct. I think that's correct. But I also do feel that um, when I went to my OT with these exercises from this researcher, she looked at me and said- Occupational you, therapist? Yeah, occupational therapist. She said, you need a complete system reboot. You need to do Shavasana. I had no idea what Shavasana was. And when she put me in Shavasana, I was furious. Yoga, yoga right? Was, yeah, it's yoga, right? It's actually corpse pose, yeah. I was I was furious. I was angry at her. I thought, what if, this isn't gonna get me to play the violin. <laughs> I was just I was so mad. And but she was actually right. I really did need to slow down and allow my own nervous system to 
uh, reboot in many ways. And it it's taken 20 years. I mean, it's it, it was 17 years before I was able to play a recital. So, so how many years were you so severely impaired that you couldn't even really play beyond using two fingers? I used two fingers for something like six or seven years, but I actually was pretty good at it. <laughs> so, so people, um, you know, people didn't even really notice. I, I, I know that's so weird to say that, but we had that conversation, you and I, about that. I said, you know, a lot of times when people play with you, they're, they're not really looking at you. You know, they're, they're absorbed in themselves. <laughs> so, so I think I, I, I became a really, really good faker is how I would describe myself. It was just fake ando um, all the time. And, um, you know, it wasn't nearly as good playing as it could have been if I, if I had full use of my hand, of course. So just to clarify, but, though, I mean, for the listeners, too, I mean, from what I understand, you got a doctorate, you studied at Juilliard, you had a manager yeah. as a solo concertizing, concert soloist violinist, like you were like really the top of the top of the top. I was, my manager was for my chamber music group for my piano trio that I played with. And we were playing concerts all over the place. So that was absolutely wonderful. And I had won a solo a competition and won a solo tour in Africa. So um, I, I, I think my career, I think, my, well, I think my career was on the, it was going uphill when this happened, let's put it that well, way. Well, what I mean though, is yeah. that you, you had the opportunity to be concertizing in the classical world, touring around the world with a manager, having graduated from Juilliard. I mean, that, I mean, to most people, 99.99% of people, that is like the upper echelon. And so it's a very, I mean, to me, it strikes me as a very dramatic and humbling, I don't even know if that's the right word, but you know, you said that you were facile or that you had you were a quick learner, but that's obviously a humble way of saying that you were the best at what you did always from an early age. You had the best teachers. You were the most advanced in every class, the youngest, the quickest, the fastest, the most envied. And all of a sudden you couldn't play. So how did that mess with your head? Oh, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I lived in a house with my two colleagues and my trio, one was my husband, and they would practice. They, we all, you know, it was a big house. We had all of our, each of us had our own areas to practice. And when they practiced, I would walk. It was, it was in uh, Charlottesville near Monticello. And I would walk down the road to this farm, a vineyard that happened to have some cows on it, on the field. And I would sit with the cows for hours because I couldn't bear to be in the house while they were practicing. It was just too painful. Um, you know, it was horrible for me. I, I don't really like to revisit it because, um, because it really was such an awful time for me. I, I think there wasn't anything that I did when I didn't know that I what I had lost, that I had lost all skill. And for a musician or anybody who you know um, has done something for a very long time, that was part of. That was who I was. That was my whole identity. It was a really hard thing for me to feel like I was worthy of of anything um, without without that ability to play the violin. I would I couldn't go to the drugstore and buy toothpaste without feeling somehow d diminished as a person. It really just was ubiquitous a ubiquitous feeling. So I had a good therapist. 
I don't know what else to tell you. I did a lot of meditation retreats. I did a lot of silent meditation retreats and I did a lot of I did a lot of therapy and I eventually was able to give myself permission to to not be the best, to not be even very good, to actually suck, you know, and and be and be really really experimental and say what happens if I hold my other fingers with my right hand and then try to do this with this finger or I mean I really went down to very very basic experimental movements I allowed myself to not look like a Juilliard trained violinist to have a hand position that was horrific looking um, and but if I could play then that's what I did and I have to be honest with you it was a hard it was a hard fought battle to give myself permission to do those things because I was brought up in the kind of in the kind of environment where, you know, you didn't change notes if you couldn't play them. It's really different from from the kind of freedom that that you that you have, um, you know, and, uh, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't rewrite Beethoven just to make the figuration easier. But I did. I said, you know what? He's dead. He's not going to be at the concert. <laughs> and it's the same chord. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> well, um, I would imagine that if you're in that situation, eh, forgive me for trying to, you know, I don't want to speak for you, your experience, I can't relate to it really, but I would imagine that you would also have to de derive your own self-worth from things out as aside from being a great Juilliard trained, quote unquote, great Juilliard trained violinist, like being a mom or being, you know, you know, having relationships and people around you. Um, is that true? Or were there other things that you derived more satisfaction and a sense of contribution and importance from? Absolutely. I mean, I, I really don't know. Um, I don't know what my life would have been like had I not had a child actually at the same time that this all happened. And, you know, you have this little baby who doesn't know that you play the violin and certainly doesn't care whether you have dystonia, you know. Um, and it just, it was just a complete, you know, love affair from the beginning. And I really felt so grateful. I would just wake up and just feel so grateful that I had this little baby. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't like an overnight thing. It wasn't like I suddenly was, well, I used to be a violinist and now I'm going to be something else. Now it doesn't really work that way. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a journey at this point. I don't know what I am and I don't really care. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think it's been an open question for so long, you know, but I will say that yoga made a big difference for me in my life. And I actually would credit if there's one thing that I did that I would credit for helping my body and mind heal and get me back, um, you know, to where I am now as a violinist, it would be, it would be the yoga, even though I can't exactly explain exactly how that works. Um, What's the feeling that yoga gives you? You know, the first time I walked into um, a yoga class, I was 35. I had had dystonia already for a couple of years and my OT was trying to get me to do yoga, but I, I wasn't listening to her. I was stubborn. And I had a baby and I just didn't do it. And it, I guess it wasn't expensive enough. I think at that point I was spending way too much money on alternative <laughs> things. <laughs> so at some point I did walk into a yoga class in Charlottesville. It was an Iyengar class. And it was a, 
It was a Wednesday morning class and they were discussing triangle pose and they were practicing in so many different ways. They were just examining, let's say, the front leg in triangle pose. And it was so detailed and so um, like, it was so interesting. It really was practicing. And I hadn't been able to practice. I missed practicing more than anything. I missed practicing. And I, I, I mean, I remember just saying, you know, a deal with God. It's okay with me if I never play another concert for the rest of my life, as long as I'm able to practice again. I just, I missed practicing so much. So I walked into this yoga class and I felt like I was practicing again. Wow. Like I was mentally engaged and it was, it was like a, you know, the kind of experimentation that, that I, I missed being able to do. And I really fell in love with it. I, I remember leaving the class and sitting in my car and just crying. I just, I couldn't believe it. Is it because so, it gives you a, like a stillness and a focal point that practicing gives you? Is that why it gives you a center to focus on? I think it, I think it might've been that style of yoga too, which is, which is actually fairly intellectual in some ways. Um, but it, yeah, it gave me something to think about and I felt like I was learning something. Got it. You know, I felt like I was changing and learning something. Well, because yoga, one of the things about yoga to me that strikes me, because I've just been doing it a little bit for the last year or two is the, the mantras and, uh, the sort of like the other day when I was there, she said, you know, think about what you're focused on in the practice. And if you can't think about anything else, just think about the phrase, I am enough. And that sounds like something that you maybe had to struggle with. Or It's true. It That's really beautiful, actually. I mean, some of my... <sighs> some of my most wonderful yoga experiences was when I felt uh, the, the, uh, when I was in a state of absorption, I would say, mm. when I was very focused on what I was doing and very in touch with my own experience of what I was doing, whether it was through the breath or through sensations in the body. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I, that I would do when I would practice the violin. I mean, that, I guess I practiced so many hours in my life that that kind of absorption came more easily because I was uh, more accomplished. It didn't come quite so easily in yoga, you know, um, right away, but I could see that this was what practicing yoga could offer me. Um, that concentration, mental concentration, and um, definitely a kind of meditative focusing on the breath. What about self-acceptance though? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so much easier for me in yoga. I mean, you know, I wasn't judgmental. I remember sitting with those cows in the field and thinking to myself, why do I care that I can't move my left hand on the violin? I don't care that I can't play tennis. I, I could I go out on a tennis court and I suck and it's OK. Right. I don't care. I don't care about that. My whole ego, my entire being and identity isn't wrapped up in being a tennis player. So what is this thing that is making me suffer so much with regards to what I've lost on the violin? I re really was curious, genuinely curious about what is this identity thing? What is it? And absolutely, um, you're absolutely right. It was much easier for me to be non-judgmental in practicing yoga and, and you know, 
it was just the joy of learning something in that state. You know, it, it, it filled a kind of space that had been empty at that point in my life. So I want to take a quick sec to thank our sponsors, Yamaha and Electric Violin Shop. If you know about me, you know that I've worked with Yamaha for over 20 years now, and uh, there are lots of reasons. Um, Their electric string line is the best, in my opinion, and their acoustic string line is amazing as well. I really want to thank Yamaha for their support. I also want to thank Electric Violin Shop. If you go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings, you can let them know that I sent you and you'll get a discount if you purchase something. Or if not, if you just have a question you want to ask them, you'll see their phone number right there. Give them a call about anything, any questions related to electric string playing. Could be pickups, amps, effects, electric violins, electric cellos, that sort of thing. And just one other important announcement it really is time right now to plan for summer i want to make sure you know about the creative strings workshop that's the first week of july in columbus ohio it is the summer conference for creative string players worldwide i want you to come and join us and experience this week it's been a labor of love for me for 16 years now and there's almost nothing that makes me happier (laughs) so if you have questions reach out to me at chris at christianhouse.com or just look up the creative strings workshop So for many years, uh, if I remember correctly, you told me that you really kept this a secret from like everybody except maybe like your husband or a couple people or something, right? I, I did because of what my manager had told me years before, even though she was no longer my manager. You know, she wasn't wrong. If I if I was hoping to heal and get better, if if it got out there that I had a serious hand problem, nobody would hire me. So... Of course, after a certain point, it was sort of hilarious to me that why am I keeping this a secret? I already have no career. I, I already, I've already given it all up. It's already gone. You know, the time has passed. I'm now an old lady. <laughs> so, so um, you know, it just seems so ridiculous to me, and so um, it felt like some kind of obstacle between me and my my friends that I that I played music with that I knew in Greensboro Symphony or that I, you know, had been at school with or, you know, anybody in music. It didn't seem to make sense to me to keep this a secret anymore. I'm assuming that there was a dream attached to your concertizing and getting through Juilliard and, you know, getting a manager and having a chamber group. I mean, those are the kinds of things that people dream about and work towards for a very, very long time. And I'm assuming that that was true of you. So, and you've refer- you, you referenced this earlier, but um, you said that it's just been an open question for 20 years. But I'm, I just want to push back on that because I'm wondering, like, has there been a dream that's taken over, like a new dream? Like, like the dream of being a mom, the dream of being a teacher, the dream of contributing to your community and to people that you love and, you know, in the world in a different way. Is it, is it really an open question or is there a way for you to find some fullness and some purpose and that's that's as explicit as the original dream you had was that's a that's that's a beautiful question actually um and these things always evolve you know i don't right. know if there was a moment when when uh 
any decisions were really made. But um, I guess probably over time, I did let go of of the career. It it still can make me sad to think of the um, the things I've let go of. You know the 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 jobs that I had to pass up and the contracts I had to turn down and things like that. Um, and yes, I really, really loved just being a mom for a very long time and just tr- struggling on my own and practicing on my own with the little movement that I had and and playing in Greensboro, um, you know, often being asked to play chamber music um, with with old friends and colleagues and people who didn't know that my hand wasn't wasn't working, but had known me from before. And I'd sort of squeak by and do my my best faking that I possibly could in the second violin seat, you know, in a, in a chamber group and really actually loved doing that. And, and, um, always really loved playing music and performing. And then I was lucky enough to, um, my husband works at UNCSA. He's a cellist and they needed an interim violinist for one year while they did conducted a search. And they asked me if I would be the interim teacher for that year. And I said, of course, and um, I decided I would try to play a recital again. So that was kind of my coming out recital. And I told you about this, how I, I was, uh, you know, had to write a, send in a bio for this, for this program. And I just felt like such a liar when I, when I was writing this bio. And I, I'm leaving out like the elephant in the room, you know. So I, I decided, you know, I need to tell the truth already. This is silly. This has been 17 years, you know. So um, anyway, the way that ended up happening was a big article came out in the News and Record. And then I played the recital and it was a very big success. Um, and they hired that year, they, they, they had an incredible violinist come uh, for the position named Ida Beeler from from Germany. She's just uh, a remarkable, remarkable musician, violinist, and pedagogue. And um, I heard her masterclass and just thought, oh, this woman is phenomenal. I would love to study with her. And then at the same time, she really wasn't, everybody wanted her for the job, but she wasn't able to give up her, completely give up her commitments in, in Europe. So I was asked if I would be her assistant which to me was like a dream, really like a dream come true. So I didn't sit down and write this dream out. It kind of happened thanks to many things, thanks to my husband, I suppose, and thanks to many other people that that help, have helped me. And, um, uh, you know, we we hit it off. She, it's For me, it's like getting my second, third, and fourth doctorates in pedagogy. It really is quite amazing working with her. And and I just want to make a mention, uh, Ida Beeler, right? Yes. Ida Beeler, um, is, this is at University of North Carolina School of the Arts, which is a private school, boarding school for high school kids, but it's also a conservatory for uh, undergraduate students, as far as I it's understand. Absolutely, it absolutely is. And actually for North Carolina residents, it is a free boarding school. So it is it is really kind of unique in the, in, the, in, in many ways. Uh, there aren't too many places like this. It isn't easy to get in uh, as a high school student because there aren't that many openings. Um, it's a small school, but it is free for all North Carolina residents if they get in. Is in it high the school. same kind of school as the North Carolina School of Science and Math? It is actually because yes. my friend Except Scott... that it has a college, except that it's really yeah Got part it. of the university my, system. My friend Scott Laird teaches 
orchestra. Yes, act. I know Scott. And Scott was on this podcast, actually. Um, so, um, well, I didn't know that, but but it but the point the reason I wanted to bring it up is because Ida Beeler is also going to be teaching for a week this summer, the second mm -hmm. week of July, prior to the week that I'll be there. So you're going to be doing right. one full week with Ida Beeler and then one full week with me. That's uh, right. And as, as far as I understand, this is open to, can anybody attend this from, they don't have to be <laughs> in college. I mean, I'm just curious. You know, it's so funny because I, I actually think that um, I'm, I'm needing to have a conversation with my dean about this because originally we wanted this to be only open for high school students, but we're getting so much interest from um, not only college students, but even the community at large that, um, you know, I'm feeling that we need to sort of have a more creative enrollment um, uh, you know, uh, well, update procedure. me about that so I can let everybody know that's listening. I absolutely them. will. Okay. It's called Summer Strings at UNCSA, so okay. check it out on the right. website. Right. Um, Ida will be doing a, a week of master classes and all, and what she what she likes to call audition prep. Um, so it is actually wonderful for for high school juniors and seniors. Um, uh, anybody actually in high school um, to get them ready for college auditions, but um, you know. You can do audition prep all the time. <laughs> Got it. Well, so. can I, I wonder if it's okay for me to pivot really quickly. I mean, I had, you said perhaps facetiously earlier that, you know, once you got dystonia, um, you, you weren't a great violinist anymore. And in fact, you sucked. Um, and I wonder, my question is, have you, I mean, obviously there's, there's certain measurable things like maybe your vibrato, you can't control your vibrato as well as you used to, or you can't nail your intonation as often as you used to, or you can't play as accurately or shift as effortlessly. Like those things are measurable, right? But that's different than saying great and sucking. Or I guess my question is, is it? Because to me, you know, that's a good, yeah, another you know, good question. I, I, I know what you're saying. And look, the artistry on the violin comes from the bow arm. So I did always feel, in fact, as I had to play with fewer fingers, um, you know, I, I actually in some ways became better with my bow arm. I be, it became more subtle and I was able to, to really, um, enable enable myself to to get away with things in a sense because of of my my bowing but huh, you know if you can't really play any of the notes it does reduce you it does you reduce things but there's something bit. beyond that though in music yeah I, I i mean i'm sorry maybe i'm disagreeing with you here but i'm but i'm gonna disagree with you um and i yeah. think my change from you know strictly classical to to then learning about other styles of music, it made me question the notion of what it is to suck versus what it is to be a great musician. And, and I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I, and part of this came for me by playing frankly with other musicians on a prison yard, musicians who learned completely self-taught who could only play a few notes sometimes, but they were saying something. And so I know yeah. it sounds to people like us, who had, or especially like you, who had the highest levels of elite training, it can seem like a little bit of a um, paying lip service. But the more that I get into this zone, the less it's lip service. And it's the more that I believe that that there's a soul that people can can bring into the music that transcends our technical ability at times. Um, I'm wondering if that, if you agree with that or not. You know, I do agree with it. And I think it was my, it was my own 
my own journey in a way, my own struggle with the whole notion of who I was and the kind of violinist that I thought that I needed to be, the kind of player that I that I would respect that then I, you know, that I wasn't anymore. I mean, there was definitely some some amount of, well, a large amount of judgment. Can that um, be revised, you know, though? Can your values change, though? I mean, yeah. are you still are you still judging according to the 23-year-old self or the 28-year-old self? Oh, no, 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 not at all. Um, I mean, can you hear more in music? I mean, as a teacher yeah. also, isn't part of the journey as a teacher? I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll, let me well, frame it a different Well, first of all, way. I don't believe it when somebody says they can't do something. That's one thing that's totally true because it's just not true. You can do it with one finger. Well, how many students do you have at UNCSA right now? Uh, 12? Uh, 15. 15. 15. So, okay. Yeah. So... Wouldn't you say that you hear beyond each of those 15 students, you hear beyond their limitations in the sense of like their soul coming through the music, the beauty? Don't you hear the beauty in what they have, regardless of if they play as fast or as perfectly? Don't you hear something that's special about each one of those students? Oh, absolutely. Everybody, everybody's different. People develop differently, though, too. So there are sometimes times where I hear somebody play and I think... Um, they go through a self-conscious stage and they're not really enjoying, they're not really uh, expressing themselves or really enjoying themselves so much. And then maybe a year later, that's completely different because everybody's always changing and growing. And especially when you hear and you're working with very young people. Um, but absolutely, everybody's different. And, and yeah, I, I love hearing that. I love hearing the really neat, amazing things about each of these students. I, I'll hear people hear them play and think, God, I wish I had that vibrato. God, I wish I could do that. I mean, it just, it's really fun. I mean, it's really fun just to see what people are blessed with, you know, and, mm. and how they, how they're inclined to express themselves. Mm. You know, that's just. What about the notion of technique? Because I, I would think that this would also change the idea about what it means to have technique. I mean, you, you revised your technique, you completely reinvented your technique. Do you, do you have a different opinion about what it means to say the word technique now? Technique for me has always meant, how do you do something? That's all it's ever really meant for me. Yeah. And so it's like the hooker by crook. It could be the hooker by crook technique, which is what you have if you're, if you're working with dystonia, or it could be the classic, more classically trained, you know, perfect, beautiful Juilliard technique that you might maybe were taught from the age of three, you know, um, it doesn't make sense in a certain way to have technique and not be a musician. Does it? I mean, not have something that you're saying, then I don't even know what that is to be honest. Um, you know, I mean, that's not to say that you don't have to know how to do certain things on the violin. We do. We practice these things and we have etudes and we practice how to make a beautiful sound doing this or that and different bow strokes. I have to figure out what I want to do first before I know how I'm going to do it. So it for, you know, the frustration with having dystonia was that the way that I would have done it before wasn't available to me. And so that loomed over me for a very long time. And once I was able gradually, I would, it, again, this didn't happen overnight by any stretch, gradually that receded, that expectation of I would have been able to do this before, this would have been so easy, I could have done it like such and such. 
you know, and instead of thinking about that, I just got to work and said, okay, this is my hand. This is what it can do. How am I going to get this to work? You know, how can I make this work? How can I do what I want to do with the hand that I have? So once I was doing that, it was all practicing again. It was all the same as it had always been, you know? Mm. And so even with a compromised hand, I was happy practicing. Once I could let go of some of the judgment, you know, against that. So what's, what's your dream now? What, what's, what, what do you see and what are you looking <laughs> forward wanna, to? I want to play Bach again. <laughs> I want to play all the movements of Bach. I can, I can do many of them, um, but I've only started practicing Bach for the past two, three years. So, um, you know, and I, I just, I would love to be able to get to do the whole book again. That's, that's my, that's my personal dream right now. Um, and, uh, and I'm really curious about the stuff that you taught me at your little workshop during our intensive arts. I've Four been, long uh, workshops. I don't know if they, if you could call them little. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't little, actually. There was so much information inside. They were not little, actually, not at all. In fact, I really wish I had taken better notes because I try to remember everything. And it's... Well, there's a video somewhere. Um, yeah. Well, and what about teaching? What do, what do you what do you look? I mean, how do you derive satisfaction as a teacher now that you do so much of it? Oh, there's endless ways to derive satisfaction as a teacher. I love it when my students get better. I mean, and when they feel good about themselves, I, I really feel like that's the main, that's the main thing is just, it's a way to transmit love. It really is. And just, you know, helping another person and um, watching them get empowered by the work that they do, wow. you know, and just really um, grow as people. You know, whether they end up being, you know, full-time musicians or part-time musicians or that, you know, some of them really can be at the very top of the profession, whatever they end up doing with it, um, it is secondary in a way, you know, so that I love teaching and I, I love teaching alongside Ida, actually, because uh, she's just such a beautiful spirit and a very experienced teacher. So I'm learning so much just from, just from watching her and uh, it's been great. So I really feel lucky. I have to say, I, I, sometimes I wake up and can't really believe it. And if I pick up the violin, I can't really believe that I can play again, you know, that I have full use of my hand and, and, uh, I, I don't quite know how that happened. It happened in v very slowly <laughs> over a long period of time. So that's great. Well, I, I so appreciate you sharing, Janet, and it's it's really inspiring for me to hear your story. Um, I guess, um, yeah, I guess maybe it goes without saying, or maybe we've already covered that that this experience that you had um, has really informed how you feel and can empathize with your students. I guess. That true? Yeah, yeah. It, it absolutely is true because everybody has um, physical restrictions. Actually, everybody has some kind of restriction, whether it's some people are very physically talented, but there we all have restrictions. We all have. I mean, I have 
mental restrictions and intel you know my intelligence is restricted too it's not just that i have dystonia i have all sorts of handicaps <laughs> so so you know we really are just working with ourselves and who we are and it really it, it helps me in a way i think to have um such experience working with um a really really obvious an, an obvious disability like that an obvious restriction um, it just doesn't phase me when my students have their own, you know, I just, we just work it out together. We just figure it out. It's just another, it's just another experiment in a way, another body to experiment with another brain and body to experiment with. Awesome. So where can people find you online or can, is there some place that you hang out online? You want people to find you, uh, maybe at the school website or maybe on your, do you have some kind of social media website stuff, whatever? Um, well, we have a summer strings Facebook page. I have my own Facebook page. Anybody can message me on that. Um, and of course we do have a website for our studio and there's lots of contact information on that. And that so, would be what a uncsa.edu. .edu. Yep. Okay, and that's for and, University of North Carolina School of the Arts. So just go to uncsa.edu, look for Janet Orenstein, look for Summer Strings. And, and definitely in 2018, um, this summer, uh, the second week of July, the third week of July, um, there's going to be a lot of exciting masterclasses. And we'll link that on the show notes page at christianhouse.com. Just go to the blog and look for this. It will be easy to find. Um, anything else on your mind, Janet? No, no, this is really fun. Thank you so yeah, much. You're uh, an awesome storyteller and it's, and it's amazing. And I just, I want to acknowledge you for everything you've gone through and that, and how you've been able to use it and sort of make the most of it and, and everything you're doing now. And it's, it's great. I'm really excited. Well, I appreciate you saying that it wasn't my choice. It was what the universe handed to me, but, and I would not, I would not want anybody to get dystonia. It's not a fun thing to get, but it's also not a horrible thing because it's not life threatening. And there's a lot of joy in relearning to play the violin as well. So, um, you know, I, uh, I appreciate this. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 29. If you liked the story, if you have comments, go over to christianhouse.com. Just look for the blog and uh, leave a comment there. Please share this episode. Reach out to me, chris at christianhouse.com anytime. I will personally respond. We'd love to know your thoughts. I want to thank our sponsors, Yamaha, We Depend on Yamaha, and Electric Violin Shop. Remember, if you go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings, and if you do purchase something, you'll get a discount. Heads up, you know it's time to plan for summer. I want to make sure you don't miss out on the 16th annual Creative Strings Workshop in Columbus, Ohio. It's really a labor of love for me, and it's become a very special gathering for creative string players all around the world. Go to christianhouse.com forward slash education, and you can learn about the Creative Strings Workshop, or just send me an email. If you have a question, send me an email about it. I appreciate you checking out the podcast, and uh, look forward to being in touch soon.